Our scripture reading today is from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that, should, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rule, rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily, for reading that passage for us this morning. We're continuing on in this series, working our way this fall through the book of Colossians. Uh, and um, I, I wanna, I'm going to give you a list of, of movies, and I want to know if you can guess what they have in common. Okay? You ready? Okay. Somebody said ready. I love it. Okay. Red Dawn, Terminator, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, This is Spinal Tap, Splash, Karate Kid, Never Ending Story, 16 Candles, Dune, The Natural, Footloose, and Muppets Take Manhattan. What do they have in common? Ryan Howard, what did you just say? We have a winner, folks. All of those movies. All of those movies came out in 1984. What a time to be alive, right? <laughs> I can't resist. Joe Gilder said to me, I came out in 1984. <laughs> Every so often I go back and I watch one of those movies. Um, and and, and I, you have a memory of them, right? You have a memory of an old movie that, that hit you in a certain way at a certain time. And, and you, you know, I'll go back and watch them. And sometimes they really hold up, right? Sometimes those movies really hold up. Other times you go back and you watch something or you want to show it to one of your kids and you're like, this is great, you're going to love it. And then you're horrified by the things that were just allowed uh, in movies back then with just the PG rating. Um, sometimes I'm impressed, but sometimes I think, how, how did we all think this was great? Um, like, The Karate Kid would be a good example of a movie where 
Nowadays, we would say, well, that's a movie about a tough kid from New Jersey who moves into this quiet suburb in California and really kind of is a bully to this troubled kid. He steals his girlfriend. Like, that's how we would see that movie now. Um, not long ago, I rewatched Back to the Future. And Back to the Future was as pivotal a movie for me as a kid as I can remember. Um, that and Rocky Three, which when I saw Rocky Three, I was at an age where it didn't even occur to me that there was a movie that existed called Rocky or called Rocky Two. I didn't know that. I just knew that Rocky Three had Mr. T in it. Anyway, I'm digressing. Um, I watched Back to the Future, and, and some of it holds up great. It's a classic. But you know what doesn't hold up in Back to the Future? It's philosophical way of defining what matters most in life. There's a moment, it's just a moment in that movie, and it struck me when, when I saw it as just being really weird. So at the beginning of the film, we meet Marty McFly, right? And he is, we are made to understand, a kid who the world is kind of against him in almost every way, but he is scrappy, he's unafraid, he's a natural leader, right? He, he, he's friends with grown-ups, and he's cool. He's just really, everything he does is he plays guitar, he skateboards, he wears that two-tone denim, the, the blue and the gray denim, right? He's cool. But the moment I'm thinking of is kind of almost a throwaway moment in the movie. And he's, he's, out, he's standing outside and he's with his girlfriend and they're standing on the street corner and a flatbed truck drives by and on that truck is a really tricked out black Toyota pickup truck. Do you guys remember this moment in the movie? And he turns and he looks at his girlfriend and he says, someday, Jennifer, someday. That's the moment that I was like, this is odd. This is odd. Because what he's saying is there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who can have a truck like that and those who can't. And what we already know about him is he can't, but he says, but someday. And then at the end of the movie, since the movie isn't about a young man's quest for a pickup truck, it's not a spoiler for me to say that he ends up with it. Uh, he has to alter the future to end up with it, but he does. And it reminds us that that movie came out in an era of unapologetic materialism. That was the 80s, that was the early 80s, and that truck represented winning, unironically. And we wanted Marty to win, and we wanted Marty to have that truck. And that message would never fly now, right? It just wouldn't. I mean, when you look at how things are marketed today, we, we really shy away from the unapologetic materialism. Now when you see ads for things, one of the things that's most common that a brand will put forward as they're, as they're trying to get you to purchase their product is they will talk about how when you purchase that product, you will be supporting a cause. Like that you, when, you, when you buy this, a portion of the proceeds will go to help this movement, it will go to help this, this cause. And there's this aligning with causes now that's a part of the moment that we are in. And you see it everywhere. Everybody does this, right? Now, don't mistake me for being jaded about helping those who are less fortunate, because I'm not jaded about helping those who are less fortunate. 
But the observation that I want to make here is kind of a twofold point. The first is this. We are in a cultural moment right now that embraces a certain philosophy. We're in a moment that embraces a certain philosophy. Just as the unapologetic materialism of the 80s marked being on the right side of things, if you had the cool stuff, companies today now know that they do benefit from aligning themselves with causes, whether the cause is connected in any way to the product that they're selling, right? So we're in a cultural moment right now that embraces a certain philosophy. The second point that I want to tie very closely to it is the cultural moment we are in will change. It always does. If you don't believe me, look at the 90s. That wasn't that long ago, and we're different, and things are different, right? It always changes. We will adopt a new philosophy, and it will have a different set of values. We always do this. In today's text, Paul is warning the church against being taken captive by, quote, philosophy and empty deceit. And later in the letter, he's going to kind of get into some of the specifics of what the philosophy is that he's referring to. But what he does here in this passage is he describes the impact of it, of this philosophy and empty, empty deceit. There are teachings that are coming into the church, and Paul is taking a portion of his letter to the Colossians, and you could even argue that it's a big part of the reason why he's writing this letter to the Colossians, is because there are false teachings coming in, and the church is learning how to think Christianly about all of life right now. And Paul is helping them do this. And he says there's these teachings that are coming in, and they're marked by four qualities that are kind of elucidated in the text. And they're qualities that can happen in any philosophy in any era. And the four qualities are these. The first is they're deceptive. He says, don't be taken in by these philosophies and empty deceit. In other words, these philosophies that they're hearing and being asked to embrace and believe may appeal to many, many people, but they're not true, he's saying. They, they may even deny, they, imagine a philosophy that may even deny that such a thing as truth exists. We're in that one right now, right? They're empty, and they're particularly empty where they promise answers. They're, they don't have answers. So they're deceptive. The second quality is they're present, presented as traditional, as ancient even, but they're really products of the age. So there are many ideas that our culture embraces today. Uh, I'm thinking about ideas and values that have to do with identity, who gets to tell us who we are. Um, and these values and ideas that we embrace as a society today diverge from nearly every other era of human history ever. And yet, we regard these views as having finally gotten to the truth of things, right? That this is the way it has always been. We're just the first to see it. So it's a, it's a philosophy that's presented as, oh, this is really the bed, bedrock truth of things that we've just, we're finally now seeing that's been, it's been veiled for everybody else, but, but we see it. The third is that they are, bear with me, 
demonic. That's a big word. I think we should normalize using the word demonic um, because when we use the word demonic, we think of like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or we think of, you know, like glowing eyes and fire and scary things, but really, what does it, what does it mean? First, I wanna, I wanna demonstrate it from the text because he doesn't use the word demonic, but in verse eight, he uses the expression elemental spirits of the world. And the word that he's using for spirit here is a word that Paul uses a number of different times that, that is usually in reference to um, spiritual rulers and authorities. Um, so he's talking about the, the demonic realm. He's talking, about, he's talking about Satan. These philosophies are demonic. Okay, you may say, that, isn't that a bit much? That's inflammatory language. Ah, that's another term that we use in the moment that we're in, right? Inflammatory language. That's triggering. What is Satan's aim? We don't know a ton about the devil in scripture, but we know a couple things. And one of the things that we know about Satan's aim was his aim was to promote himself and his own glory over the glory of God, right? Satan's aim is that. So to persuade us to reject God by glorifying the adoration of self is demonic. Well, we live in a time right now that is all about promoting the adoration of self over all other parties involved. If the aim of a philosophy is to promote the supremacy of people over the supremacy of God, it is, it's by definition demonic. It's, it's the agenda of the enemy, right? And so it, it, it doesn't have to show up in a, in a, in a, in a fiery ball with a, you know, the, the, the pitchfork and the horns and the bifurcated tail in order to be demonic. It just has to be something that says the glory of God is secondary or even immaterial when it comes to the pursuit of the glory of self. So the fourth quality is they're enslaving. Um, So they're deceptive, they're presented as traditional and ancient when they're actually a product of the age. They're demonic. Fourth, they're enslaving. And here's the trap. It's like Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. It's easy to get into. It's hard to get out of. Uh, On the one hand, the philosophy is presented as a welcoming refuge. Come, come. Life and truth can be found here. But when somebody embraces it, it demands full allegiance, learning a vocabulary, embracing a, a, a way of living, a way of thinking about yourself and other people. And if you ever attempt to leave it, you will be accused of being hateful, narrow, maybe bigoted, Uh, You might be called unsafe. Um, And it's everywhere now. And it's it's truly enslaving. I had a a moment, um, uh, something happened um, about a year and a half ago. I was teaching a group of, uh, these were all people who had just graduated college and they were part of a, a kind of a coalition together and they were working through some kind of work and faith uh, topics and studying together. And, um, and so I, I was asked to come and speak uh, on um, art and life and faith. Uh, and, they, and they told me, by the way, the last time we met, we got into the subject of human sexuality. And there may be, we'd love for you to do, answer some questions if you wouldn't mind doing that. And I, I said, that's fine. 
Um, you know, I, I take a historic biblical view of God's ideal for human sexuality being between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. That is what I believe scripture teaches. Um, and there were a couple of these young adults who did not come and told the person who was leading this group that they weren't going to come because it felt unsafe. And I think about that and I think, is it, is, is, is it unsafe to be in the room with people with divergent ideas? Um, I don't know. It's something to think about, isn't it? So these are the qualities of it. And it's a cycle that continues. It still happens, meaning it's unending. And the specific agendas and philosophies of the age that deny the, the authority and the rule of God, they're unique to the age, right? Ours are very specific arguments. Now they were very specific for Paul. They continually shift with time, but they always keep coming. And Paul says, don't be enslaved by these, but instead, walk in Christ. He is your help in the face of danger. And verses 9 and 10 describe Christ as our help. And in doing so, show why he is not just another empty philosophy. It says this in verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the world says you're an empty vessel you need to fill yourself up. And this text says, no, if you're in Christ, you are not empty. You are filled in him. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because of who he is. And look at what it says about who he is. He says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. He is God. Jesus is God. The spirit of the Lord dwells inside those who believe. So Christ is, is our help. He's our help to resist empty philosophies and to follow him and to walk in him. But he's also our reason. He's not just our, our help, he's our reason. Verses 11 and 12 tell us something that's true about us when our faith is in Jesus. Paul says we're circumcised in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it, circumcision was an initiatory rite that marked a person as belonging to the covenant people of God. And it was something that was done to a person, not by a person. And it marked them forever. And it was bloody. It was a mutilation of the flesh. But our spiritual circumcision, which is shown in the sacrament of baptism, proclaims that it's no longer through the shedding of our own blood that we're saved or that we're brought into the covenant community of God, but it's by the blood of Christ. And what does the blood of Christ do for us? It cleanses us, hence water replacing blood. Apart from Christ, he says, you're dead in your sins. But when we're in Christ, we've been raised. We've been resurrected from our sins already. Past, it happened already. We've been raised from our sins. When he rose from the dead, Paul says, all your sin was nailed to the cross which is this image of the sign that hangs above the criminal's head that details the crimes for which they're there. 
we don't need another man-centered philosophy to find peace because we have peace. We have peace in Christ and in the finished work of Christ. And then Paul drills down on this in verses 13 through 15. He says, before Christ, you were spiritually dead in your sins, but God has made us alive together with Christ by removing our sin and forgiving us so that there is no more guilt in us anymore. No more. See, Christ's life and death in our place, it cancels, he says, the debt and the legal demands that go with our sin. The wage of sin is death. Christ died on our behalf. Did death hold him? It couldn't. And the reason it couldn't is because he, he didn't earn the wage. He, he defeated death. With his resurrection, death was canceled, yours and mine, when our faith is in Christ. How? How was that death canceled? It was canceled on the cross. It was nailed there. My sin and yours, my death and yours, was crucified. It was killed. The old reformers used to talk about this as the death of death, right? By rising from the grave, Christ disarmed all authority. See, the most damning punishment that they had to throw at him, a humiliating death was answered with a glorious resurrection. Jesus didn't just beat death, he triumphed over the grave. And when we trust in him, we share in that victory. What does it mean to share in that victory? It means that our eternal hope is secure because our creator, that the one we're looking for Anytime we're looking for significance or worth or meaning has moved toward us. He's moved toward us in a love so generous that he didn't spare his own son, but gave him to defeat the grave itself for us, giving us life in his name. Straight gospel. The empty philosophies that we embrace, that we give ourselves away to now, they will show themselves to be empty. And we know this. We know this because we look at the philosophies of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and we think, ah, people bought that? Did you know that there was a time in the 1980s when the most popular and respected show on television was the A-Team? when families en masse would carve out time to sit in their living rooms because that was coming on. I mean, we look at that show now, it's nothing but camp. But it was taken very seriously in the 80s, right? There are things that our culture believes and values today that we will cringe at later as being hollow promises, and we will wonder how we were taken in by them. Like Marty McFly pining for the tricked-out pickup as a symbol of being all right in this world, there are philosophies that we embrace right now that we look at each other and we say, someday, someday, that will seem soon so transparent. We will wonder how we were taken in. And I wonder what they are. See, the trick is you don't know in the moment because it seems right. 
But until Christ returns, these empty philosophies will always be here in some form. And the new ones will always seem right and will shudder in embarrassment at the ones we've discarded. But the gospel isn't a new philosophy, nor is it even an ancient one. It is the true story that goes back before the dawn of time. It goes back to the glory and the power and the authority and the splendor of our creator who made us for himself and then made a way for us to be restored to him after we had rejected him. The gospel will never turn up empty. It will never lose its relevance because it isn't just a trendy new idea to play with. It is the eternal truth of the astonishing measure of the perfect love that God has for you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the strength and the power of your word that if we give ourselves to its, to its study, to reading, that you will confront us with your word. Father, I pray, I ask, that you would make us to be a people who count it as a sign of spiritual maturity to be people who are willing and even see the value in placing ourselves in front of things that confront us. Would you deliver us from considering it safe to only be around agreeing voices? Because, Father, I can't think of much that is more dangerous than that. But instead, give us the humility to see more than we see and to learn and to consider where we're wrong, to be shown where we're wrong, and to embrace things that are fundamentally true because of who you are at the expense of empty and deceptive philosophies that would want to take us captive. Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who defeated the power of death itself, that we live with the promise and the hope of resurrection and redemption and atonement. And we thank you for your mercy and grace at work in our lives. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.